0: Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folktales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. This episode will be continuing our look at the legendary origins of Britain. If you haven't already, I definitely suggest listening to the last episode, about Albina, first. While this story is kind of standalone, I'll be referring back to that episode a fair bit, and there will be some spoilers for it. But hey, ultimately I can't tell you how to live your life, so if you just want to ignore me and listen to this one first, then go ahead, knock yourself out. Now, if you recall the last episode, we were on the south coast of what is now England and a battle was raging. On one side, the few remaining giants of Albion, ultimately descendants of Syrian princesses and their infernal consorts. There's that big spoiler I warned about. On the other, a Trojan army led by Brutus, but, as was stressed last time, not that Brutus. A totally different Brutus, who, despite living over a millennia before that Brutus, still had to put up with all those et-two jokes throughout his childhood, because kids are cruel. Now, Brutus is one of your classic square-jawed, washboard abs, bowling balls and a sock for limbs type warrior heroes, who are amazing at everything involving fighting and honour, your typical hero type. Today, we're going to be looking at his backstory. To step back from the narrative for a bit before we jump into that... I will say that in the original of this story there's a lot of names and the exact locations of battles and ambushes are given in great detail, who killed who and on what day of what battle and how great everyone was or was not, alongside a good deal of begatting, begotting and begetting at the start. For this telling many of the more repetitive elements like this have been removed or condensed into single instances. I hope you'll thank me for it. Of course, you can go and find the original, unadulterated version online if you wish. Also, like last episode, this is a history, so it's a bit scant on dialogue and generally heavy on the chronology of stuff. So, that said, let's begin. The story of Brutus starts several hundred years after the unsteerable ship of starving sisters set sail from Syria into storm-tossed seas. Despite that lengthy amount of time having passed, we're still in an era of myth and legend. Two generations previous, the greatest city in the world at the time, Troy, had been conquered and destroyed. This city, on the coast of what is now Turkey, was laid low by a mix of the Greeks, their gods, and an even worse and more infamous present than a second pair of Christmas socks. The details of the Battle of Troy are well known, but slightly less discussed is the fate of the Trojans themselves. Following the Greek victory, the Trojan survivors of the war had met various fates. Some had been forcibly exiled, taken into slavery, Others had fled across the world. Such was their might that despite being fleeing refugees, a number of them went on to conquer the lands they escaped to. Such it was with Aeneas, a great hero who was son of the god Aphrodite. After somewhat unfortunate adventures for all involved, Aeneas and his followers wound up in what is modern-day Italy, where he founded a dynasty that would eventually lead to the emperors of Rome. And it is through Aeneas that we get to Brutus. Not that Brutus, remember. Last time I say that, promise. Brutus? Brutus was the great-grandson of Aeneas. So, he's born as a prince of Trojan blood. But his family is now in Italy, ruling. And Brutus didn't have the best luck with childhood. His grandfather, Ascanius, was king at the time of his birth. And before Brutus was born, Ascanius asked his seers about the destiny of the unborn child. The seers replied, my liege, your grandson has a great destiny ahead of him, but we see darkness also, for he will kill both his father and his mother, but nevertheless go on to live a life of great renown. Now, pretty much unlike any other oracle consulting king in the history of mythology, Ascanius didn't try to get around the prophecy in a way that would ultimately lead up to it being fulfilled he just seems to have shrugged his shoulders and accepted it pretty nonchalantly. Which makes him just about the most reasonable prophecy receiver ever. Maybe he just really didn't like his son. I don't know. And of course, ignoring it didn't help at all in avoiding the fate. Brutus' mother died in childbirth, which, while truly awful, was a non too rare occurrence in the ancient world, so didn't really quite prove the seers right just yet. But as a young man out hunting with his father, he accidentally shot the man rather than a deer he had been aiming at. Mistake or not, it was an appalling act, and his family closed ranks on the young Brutus. He would be exiled. So the young man, still fairly rich, left Italy and made his way to Greece. So just to recap, Brutus is the great grandson of Trojan hero Aeneas, who fled to Italy after Troy was destroyed. Brutus was born in Italy as a Trojan prince, but he's now been exiled to Greece. This story is a bit of a tour around the Mediterranean really, In Greece, Brutus sought out his kinsmen, for there were another group of Trojans living there. But unlike Aeneas' descendants, living it up as kings, the Trojans in Greece were in a bad way. They had been brought there as slaves three generations previous, and had progressed little from that lowly status in the time. And despite being far away from his homeland, it was here that Brutus started to shine. Maybe it was him having been brought up a prince, possessing of a princely education, Maybe it was because he was used to freedom. Freedom in this case meaning being the oppressor rather than the oppressed. Maybe it was because the blood of the gods ran in his veins. Perhaps it was simply the demands of the prophecy and the narrative of the story. Whatever the reason, Brutus soon became known in Greece as the top Trojan man when it came to tournaments and fighting. And soon he was receiving huge financial awards, fantastic accolades, and clandestine requests from the Trojan slaves that he lead them in a fight for freedom against the Greeks. Now one of those is not like the others. And Brutus rose to the occasion, kind of. There was a nobleman of Greece named Asaracus, a name satisfying to say. Asaracus was half Greek, half Trojan. There's a bit more to it, but essentially... Our guy Asaracus was due an inheritance granted by his dying father. However, Asaracus' fully Greek half-brother had scoffed at that and taken it all by dint of being, well, fully Greek. And damn the wishes of the dead, dad. The king of Greece at a time was a man named Pandrasus. Sorry, I did say there'd be a lot of names, just let them kind of wash over you. And King Pandrasus was minded to support Asaracus' brother, That might be the end of it, you think. You've got the king on your side. However, despite not having his father's wealth, Ataracus did have some fortifications and some loyal troops. And he was very keen on making sure he got what he was due. And maybe he'd get a nice juicy dish of revenge against his brother on the side. Brutus, by now default leader of all Trojans in Greece, because of his fine tournamenting skills, saw the opportunity and the two young rich men had a productive meeting to discuss their plan. Soon, a full-scale rebellion was in the offing, with Asaracus and Brutus lining up against King Pandrasus. Brutus took command of the armies, and sent a strongly worded letter to Pandrasus advising him that the Trojans had all run away into the forests rather than live any more as slaves. He also asked politely that they all be given their freedom now, and a pardon, much appreciated. Pandrasus and the Greek nobles decided that they would be doing precisely no such thing, and instead they sent an army out to the forests that Brutus had mentioned all the Trojans were hiding in. I imagine he might have even included a handy map in his letter with a big arrow drawn on it. We've run away here! And when that army reached the forest, well, would you believe it, but there were no Trojans there at all. In fact, they were all in a nearby fortress owned by Asaracus. And they'd been kitted out with all the best of Asaracus' weapons. With the Greeks hunting around in the forest, separated and not really expecting much resistance, The Trojans sallied forth from their fortress, ambushed them, and roundly defeated the Greek army. Brutus, you wily old son of a gun, it appears you're something more than just a fantastic set of abs. And so the war continued in earnest, as wars are wont to do. There were more battles, minor skirmishes. there were sieges, there were massacres and great deeds to be told, both heroic and dastardly though the difference came down mostly to on which side you were standing, and there was a great deal of suffering, pain and death. Brutus played a pivotal role throughout the conflict, and eventually it came to a head, with Brutus outnumbered, and his force split. One group was under siege from the enemy in a stronghold. Brutus himself was with a smaller contingent of men out in the forests. The Greeks outnumbered them, and he knew that if nothing could be done, they would soon be defeated. But he had two advantages. Firstly, pandrasus and his army believed Brutus was still in the stronghold. They didn't realise he was sneaking around in the forest with this smaller force. Secondly, Brutus had previously captured some high-up Greek prisoners who were with him. There was the king's brother, Antigonus, and a key general and a good friend of Antigonus's, Anacletus because apparently when it came to names, the Greeks rarely got past Alpha on their baby name idea scroll. Brutus considered the situation, and he took advice from an unnamed source, and so came up with a plan. This advice is referred to as crafty in the version of the chronicle I'm taking this from, but honestly, that seems just a little too generous. It wasn't the height of originality or subtlety. Though I suppose, in fairness, it did have the elegance of just not being a big fight on a battlefield. So, Brutus takes up this plan, and he goes to his captives with a proposition. Later that night, most of the Greek army was fast asleep, after a good day's besieging. A few sentries patrolled the camp, ready to wake up the rest of the men at the first sign of trouble. Anacletus that's the general who had been captured, remember, stumbled out of the forest towards the Greek camp. The sentries spotted him immediately, and men ran over to him. Anacletus started. First of all, I want to be clear, I'm definitely not coming to you as a traitor to my own people. Er, okay, said one of the guards, whose name probably began with an A. That's good, we don't like traitors. Yeah, said Anacletus. Because what would be crazy is if Brutus had promised that me and my mate, Antigonus, would be spared in return for me betraying everyone. Obviously, if that had happened and Brutus had made really graphic frets about what would happen if I didn't cooperate, huh, I mean, this just seems like a totally implausible situation. Yeah, I suppose it does. So what's actually happened is that me and Antigonus, we uh, we escaped, yep, and he's back there. Somewhere, the definitely escaped Anacletus gestured back at the forest. He's all in heavy shackles and exhausted, and I need some help in getting him back to the camp. Hmm. The guard was slightly suspicious. He couldn't put his finger on it, but something smelt slightly wrong about this. Let me just consult my manager. And there was a brief back and forth, but... Eventually, a guy who'd known Anacletus for ages turned up, and he was like, Hey, Anacletus, you escaped. Great. What, betray us? he asked the junior guard. Of course he wouldn't. He's been my friend for ages. Why would such a notion ever cross your mind? No reason, sir. And so, off went all the guards into the forest to retrieve Antigonus. Five minutes or so later, Brutus and his hundreds of men emerged out of the forest, wiping blood from their swords. Silently, they formed into columns and walked into the now unguarded camp. Later still, Brutus had the Greek king bound at his feet and was feeling pretty pleased with himself. His very cunning plan of intimidating the hell out of a prisoner to make him betray his people so that the Trojans could murder all the sleeping Greeks had paid off. That business with the horse... That was nothing compared to his strategic genius here. The only reason King Pandrasus was left alive was so that there was something the Trojans could bargain with the rest of the Greeks for. Brutus doubled down on his graphic threats, and soon Pandrasus agreed that in return for his life, he'd give the Trojans basically whatever they wanted. This caused something of a debate amongst the ranks of the Trojans. Should they stay here in Greece where their homes were, or leave? where the Greeks couldn't persecute them again. Eventually, a Trojan named Memprisius stood up, asked for silence, and delivered a beautiful speech, the gist of which was, Should we stay? This conflict will continue forever. For too much blood has been spilt, and their sons shall hate our sons, and so the cycle will continue. Should we try to live here together, this battle will be passed down between neighbours across the ages. Is that what we want? Remember what we are doing this for, to escape from lies of slavery. We seek only peace for our families and our children, not ceaseless war. The treasury of Greece has enough gold, silver and corn to fund a great voyage for us, and so we should leave this place behind on a grand fleet and so achieve our freedom. There was a great outburst of applause at this core for an end to the bloodshed, the cycle of revenge, and the hurting of so many innocents. Oh, and of course we should definitely abduct the daughter of the Greek king, and force her to marry Brutus against her will, Nemprisius added. There were noises of agreement. Yes, yes of course that. I mean, that bit goes kind of without saying, doesn't it? As I mentioned before, in this world, the only options anyone seemed to see was oppress or be oppressed. And so, having thrown off the tyranny of the Greeks, Brutus and the Trojans left the country. Thousands of them boarded 24 ships taking gold, silver and the sobbing daughter of King Pandrasus with them. And yes, that sobbing bit is literally in the story. They sailed for two days and a night, before first making landfall on an island. A bit of light exploring revealed it to be abandoned, though there were some signs of previous habitation. They hunted the deer they found there, and stocked up on even more food. The men feasted well upon the deer, and Brutus had a great hunger on him, and he... ate too. Sorry, sorry, not that Brutus. Exploring the island some more, they came across a temple sacred to Diana, goddess of hunting and animals. Having neither read H.P. Lovecraft nor played Tomb Raider, they were less wary of abandoned temples deep in the forest than might generally be the case today. Instead, being a religious type, Brutus took 12 elders who apparently were hanging around, and Gerion, the augur, an augur being a kind of cross between a priest and a fortune teller. With wine and the blood of a deer, they made sacrifice, To Diana, goddess and forest queen, the wild boar's terror, Brutus called her, which is a pretty badass series of titles. And in return, Diana appeared to Brutus. Perhaps in a dream, perhaps not, but she stood before him and uttered these words of prophecy Past the realms of Gaul, beneath the sunset, Lies an island surrounded by sea, guarded by ocean, the haunt of giants. Seek it, for there is thine abode for ever. There by thy sons again shall Troy be built. There of thy blood shall kings be born. Hereafter, sovereign in every land the wide world over. Now, news of this made everyone pretty pleased, as a prophecy from a goddess tends to do. As if their victories had not been enough already, it seemed the gods were definitely on their side, and now they knew there was a place that they could call their own. Unsure of exactly where they were headed, they knew a destination awaited them, and led by Brutus, the Trojans took up their ships once again and headed west, hoping to find the island from the vision. A month or so sailing later, They were out near the shores of north-west Africa, near Carthage as was, and Algeria as is now. And there, the fleet was beset by pirates. But after fierce fighting, they heroically won this naval encounter, and found themselves enriched by the treasures they took from the pirates. Yeah, so given everything we know about the Trojans by this point, and factoring in what happens next, I am quite dubious about the facts as presented here. Let's consider. A huge, well-armed fleet sails into waters not its own and happens to have an encounter with pirates who somehow totally misjudge the situation and end up losing all their ships and goods to the fleet they attack. How very convenient for our, in inverted commas, heroes. In any case, we can be pretty sure that there was piracy going on here. After being so enriched, they made landfall further west in North Africa, where there is no dispute as to their actions, for apparently they ravaged the region from end to end, which you will notice is an action very little to do with finding the land promised by Diana. Next stop on Brutus' lads-on-tour cruise, fulfilling your destiny through extreme violence, was further into Africa, beyond the pillars of Hercules, or the Straits of Gibraltar as they're known today. There they came ashore, and were getting ready to have another jolly knockabout murder fest with the locals when two factors about said locals slowly dawned on them. Firstly, they were led by a man who is genuinely gigantic in stature. Not a giant, apparently, because giants in this story also have to be monstrous, ugly, violent, mindless and brutish creatures. Which, in a point I've laboured before, makes them totally distinguishable from all the brutish, violent, basically mindless humans in this story. And this leader was just a really, really, really large human. And the second fact that Brutus's people noticed was that the locals of these lands were also descendants of Trojans. What are the chances? There was great rejoicing as the two sides met. The giant leader of these Trojans was called Corineus, and when him and Brutus first met, I imagine each of them trying to outdo each other in the manliest, most painful bear hug possible, desperately waiting for the other one to grimace, as each squeezed as tightly as they could and tried to keep a relaxed grin on their faces. Corineus, being massive, would have won the this-is-not-a-competition hug-off but for some reason, Brutus ended up as overall leader of both the Trojans of Italy and Africa, though of the giant Corineus now firmly established as his right-hand man. Upon learning about the prophecy from Diana, these Trojans also were inspired by the idea of a land of their own, a new Troy. And the two groups, hooked up, got back on Brutus' ships and set off once again to find it. Now they turned the fleet northwards, heading for past Gaul, which was where the goddess had said. Surely the place must be close now. But they just couldn't help themselves, and so they stopped off for a bit in Aquitaine, where they did not need to be, and which was very, very close to this mythical island for which they were heading. When the king of Aquitaine discovered them, he asked them to stop hunting in his forests. And of course the Trojans responded reasonably, with some all-out bloody warfare. They made quick work of the armies of Aquitaine. Corinius would cut men in two, and probably wisecracked as he did it. And the Trojans in general cut a bloody path of death and destruction through the land that they just rocked up at for no real reason. This time there doesn't even seem to be any attempt at a causus belli as we might understand it. No, this was straight-up invasion just for the sheer fun of it, and maybe because Brutus was really keen to live up to the brutality suggested by his name. The invasion of Aquitaine was closely followed by a war with all of Gaul, in which Quirinius and Brutus generally delighted. But, as the battles continued, people were dying. By which I mean, real people. Trojans. And every day, the number of people who had set out from Greece with dreams of a peaceful place of their own reduced slightly. And more and more Gauls were arriving from all around their land, desperate to defeat these monstrous foreign invaders. Lot of dead today, said Brutus to Corinius at one point. The giant nodded. I'm not suggesting we retreat, you understand. No, obviously not. But maybe, well, this has been fun and all, and we've got lots of treasure, so that's good. But there was that prophecy, and maybe I should get round to that. Quirinius nodded in agreement. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. We're not retreating, though. Oh no, not retreating, obviously. We could take them all, you and me. But let's just go find this island, shall we? It's not like these Gauls are competition worthy of us anyway good point. Unfair fight. Yeah. And we really care about the fairness of our fighting, said Corinius. Brutus agreed. They did. Very important. And so it was back to the main quest. And it was a shorter voyage this time. With a favourable wind behind them, the remaining Trojans reached Albion in good time. For of course Albion was the uninhabited island paradise that awaited them. The site of the Trojans' landings would later become the town of Totnes on the Devon coast. And to this day, one can find in Totnes the stone where Brutus first stepped off his ship and onto the island. It's got a big arrow pointing to it and everything. And even though a far rainier country than any of the Trojans were used to, the land was a paradise to them. Filled, as in the time of Albina, with plentiful fish, birds and game. This was the land the goddess had promised him. And after murdering their way around Europe, even Brutus felt that it was time to settle down for a bit. There was just one slight problem. And so, we return to where we began this story at the beginning of the last episode. The giants, those descendants of the exiled Syrian princesses and the incubi, still inhabited the land. Though only 24 remained, they united to make their final stand against the human invaders. They were led by Gogmagog, most fearsome of all, and it wasn't long before the giants and the Trojans were engaged in battle. The giants wielded trees like clubs and smashed the bodies of the humans aside like straw. The fighting was bloody and fierce, but the giants, though ferocious, were in the end no match for the more numerous, disciplined and Equally ferocious forces of the Trojans, though many, many more Trojans died. By the end of the day of the giant attack, the bodies of 23 giants lay as a feast for the crows. Brutus let Gogmagog live, though, but ordered him stripped of his weapons. I wish I could say it was out of some form of mercy, but far from it. Corineus, colossal as he was, had always hankered an ambition to wrestle a real live giant. And this was to be his chance. He was overjoyed at the prospect, the greatest wrestling match in history, and he stripped off his armour with wild glee. For the defeated Gogmagog, surrounded by Trojans baying for his blood, his comrades already slain, there was no chance of glory. In one afternoon, he had gone from being the leader of the giants becoming the very last of his kind win or lose he knew that there was no way in which he could live nothing he could do to stop this land becoming yet another realm of humanity but when brutus deemed the match to have begun and corinius came at gogmagog his base survival instinct kicked in and the two took to wrestling to the horror of the trojans advantage went to gogmagog and he held corinius in an armlock and squeezed with all his strength. The gruesome sound of bones snapping rang out clearly, and Corinius winced as Gogmagog broke two of his ribs. Desperately, Corinius gathered all of his strength, and with it lifted Gogmagog up over his head, and then Corinius ran, ran to the shoreline, climbed the highest cliff around, and threw the giant off of it. Gogmagog's body fell onto the jagged rocks below, and there it was smashed to pieces, and the waves turned red with his blood, washing away the last living trace of Albina from the land. In victory, Brutus renamed the land granted to him Britain. Corinius chose to live around the area where the boats had first landed, and that place became known as Cornwall after him. Brutus also went on to found the capital of his new land there on the banks of the River Thames and he called the city New Troy and though it was renamed there it still stands one of the greatest cities of the world from his exile in Italy through wars in Greece Africa and Gaul Brutus had come to this land and made it his own he had rebuilt Troy here and he was sure that this country had a great future ahead of it. And now you've heard the story of the first inhabitants of Britain, Albina and Brutus, a country birthed in extremes of diabolical incest, violence and seaborne invasions. And in the many millennia that have passed, Britain has definitely doubled down on the violence and seaborne invasions. Brutus would have been proud. So, the founding of Britain. Somewhat unexpectedly by a Trojan. The version I've just told, and the usual source for this tale, is, as I mentioned last time, Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, or Historia Regum Britanniae, in Latin, which is the language it was originally written in. As the name suggests, this is a comprehensive chronicle of British monarchs written in the 1130s, which begins with Brutus and continues over 12 books. It takes in the early kings, goes through the Roman invasions, and then to King Arthur, all the way to the reign of the last king, to apparently be truly British, Codwalda, who lost his throne to the invading Saxons in the 600s. So, it covers a period of about 1,800 years, though the early dates aren't exactly spelled out. And as history goes, it's pretty much completely unreliable, a total write-off. But that is kind of beside the point, because the influence of the history of the kings of Britain on British folklore, literature, culture and perceptions of history is huge. It contains some of the most early, complete narratives of stories about King Arthur and the earliest version of King Lear which wasn't actually written by Shakespeare. And it was so influential because it was wildly popular by medieval standards. The tales in it were combined with others and rewritten both as legend and history for hundreds of years. One such version, which we also mentioned last episode, is called the Brut Chronicles, named after Brutus. This was originally written in Anglo-Norman, but later became popular in English in the late 1200s and throughout the 14th century. The Brook Chronicle broadly takes the history of the kings of Britain, tags Albina on at the start, and adds a load of more recent kings to the end. And I am of course massively oversimplifying here. There are loads of versions of this manuscript, which are all different to some extent, as it comes from a time before printing was available. It was so popular that of manuscripts written in Middle English, copies of the Brook Chronicle are second only in number to those of the Bible. And when printing did come along in the 1400s, the Brook Chronicle was one of the first and most printed books. Though much expanded from the history of the Kings of Britain, it went on to influence playwrights who we still read today. Yet other versions of it were translated into Welsh, where it straight up formed parts of Welsh ballads and literature. So, a pretty vast influence. There's much more I could talk about with regards to the work, and about Geoffrey himself, the Welshness or not of his sources, and the influence of it all. But honestly, given the amount of material that connects back to this work, we're probably going to be touching on it again in an episode very soon, and so I'll save a bit for later, and to stop the running time of this episode expanding indefinitely. One question you might have is, where did the stuff that was written in the history of the Kings of Britain come from? Particularly the Brutus bit, because that's the story that we're meant to be discussing here. Geoffrey himself claims that he was given a very ancient book and that kind of covers off most of his sources, but no one really believes this neat catch-all explanation today. And the reality seems to tie together a few different manuscript histories that were in existence with a great deal of Geoffrey's own invention and creativity. And the Brutus story fits nicely into this category. The first real mention of Brutus as a founder of Britain dates all the way back to the 9th century, in a book with a similar title, the Historia Britannium. This is often attributed to a Welsh monk called Nennius, but it seems he didn't actually write it. I hope you're keeping up with all this. Now, this book, not by Nennius, broadly outlines the story I've told today. But Geoffrey's accounts adds loads of more details and giants. Oh, and Ascanius, that is our stoic prophecy acceptor, is in no way so stoic in the original. Now, it seems likely that lots of the additional details were probably just made up by Geoffrey, So it's to him that we owe a lot of the detail of this story. There's no reason to believe that any of this has any basis in fact, of course. There was a kind of ongoing project of European chroniclers to tie the history of nations back satisfyingly to biblical and classical sources. The Brutus story fits very neatly into that category. In one version, it even goes through Troy all the way back to Noah. Creating such false ancestry stories helps give legitimacy to a particular ruler, enhance the prestige of your country or your kin. The very first mention we have of anything that's even vaguely like the story of Brutus refers to a Roman, also called Brutus, who conquered Spain. And it's this story that has been twisted and warped and expanded in the retelling and rescribed until it eventually became Geoffrey's far more detailed telling, which then kind of stuck by dint of that work's popularity. And while the legend has mostly faded from the general public consciousness today, there are a few places in Britain where there are artefacts that relate to it still. In Totnes, there is a Brutus stone, apparently the place where he first stepped off the ship. In London, or New Troy, there is another stone, known as the London Stone, and that is supposedly the founding stone of the first Temple of Diana in London, placed there by Brutus himself. Though, just to make things more confusing, both these stones, which do definitely exist and have some historical significance, only became linked with Brutus much later in the 18th century. Because legends have a habit of bouncing around, getting stuck to each other, and recombining in unexpected ways. Now we talked a bit about the giants last episode. Giants are a common feature of origin myths and often used as a handy tool to explain features of the landscape otherwise deemed inexplicable. With Gogmagog, which is another very satisfying word to say, there's a bit of a dispute about the origins of his name. It could be linked to Gog and Magog, who are two groups of people mentioned in the Bible who are enemies of God's people. They're allies of Satan and sometimes they're the names of kings who lead these tribes. Also, they were possibly defeated by Alexander the Great, but the name might come from somewhere else entirely. Gogmagog and Corinius had a bit of an afterlife in British folklore, removed from Brutus, as well as appearing in other tales afterwards. Wicker effigies of these giants were included in pageants and became associated with the Guildhall and Lord Mayor's Parade in London, with both Corinius and Gogmagog referred to as giants. By this point, there are actually wooden statues of them in the Guildhall to this day and effigies of the giants made out of wicker are still carried as part of the parade. Though confusingly, at some point, they became renamed Gog and Magog, so two of them, and no Corinius. However, if you want to go see Gog and Magog, or Corinius and Gog Magog, you can go and see them being paraded every year in London. So following that very brief overview of some of the origins of this story, let's talk a little bit about the tale itself. I feel obligated to admit it's not the most interesting of legends to me, telling as it does the rise to power of a murderous man who, despite freeing his people, goes on to use that freedom to basically terrorise others, and doesn't even do so in a particularly interesting way. And you, gentle listener, could respond with, well, it's meant to be history, not entertainment. You could also point out that if I didn't think it was interesting, then I really didn't need to tell it, and maybe bored everyone with it. But actually, I think it is worth telling in light of its connection to Albina and to the other mythical histories of Britain we'll probably end up talking about as the podcast goes on. It also is somewhat fascinating about how the morality of the tale has changed. Similarly to what was discussed with Albina, in that tale, the message becomes reversed over time. Rather than being the women at fault, they become the victims or the survivors. And with Brutus, it's kind of the other way around. In the story, he's clearly meant to be virtuous in some way. An exemplar of a particular kind of leader, warrior, and fundamentally, of what a man should be. And that reading of it now seems kind of unsupportable. And it's difficult to not just look at what he does and see, to put it very mildly, a colossal jerk. Now, like Albina, it's not quite as simple as that. There's clearly a mixed message about Brutus even in the original, and writing from a Christian perspective, there's something about this incredibly violent pagan that's definitely supposed to be tut-tutted at. Nevertheless, that's kind of a secondary message, whereas when telling the story now, I found it to be the only realistic reading. Despite my confession about the story, I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless, and are at the very least now informed about the real origins of the peoples of Britain, from Syria and Turkey respectively. Join us again next time, when we'll be telling a spooky tale from the Fenlands of Lincolnshire. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members episodes. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you'll join me again soon.